excited to talk to Ben DeGro this morning with uh, Excel and Ed, formerly known as, still maybe known as Foundation for Excellence in Education, a nonprofit that's been around quite a while, talking about things related to school choice. And I wanted to talk to you this morning, Ben, because I've been studying school choice policy now for decades, and this whole myth versus fact thing, I feel like is a perennial favorite of there are so many myths around uh, what would happen if parents in the United States were given the option of choosing where their kids go to school versus being assigned to a school, including choosing a private school, like so many countries around the world do. The United States, it's still very antithetical to how we operate. And so it feels like I'm I'm continually having to dispel myths and I wanted to talk to you this morning about an article that you recently published on the myth uh, that uh, if we have a school choice, it will drain money, drain students, drain power, drain from the public uh, school system as it exists today. So why is that not true? <laughs> so I think the first thing we need to say, I mean, is you make a great point, like um, internationally, there's lots of evidence that these should dispel these myths, but uh, Americans and maybe maybe particularly people from Missouri want want people to show them right. Is that sure, right? that's right. So, you know, twenty years ago we had little evidence from, you know, the United States and how choice programs were working. Here we are, two decades later, hearing a lot of the same uh, fear factor and mythology, and yet we have a lot more evidence to dispel that. I think that's what people ought to take away: is uh, it's not just theoretical. Um, but the, this claim that that school choice programs uh, drain money and resources from public schools has uh, just been exposed more and more as uh, a product of fear and misinformation. And we can dive into specifics of why that's why that's not true. Yeah, I mean, it seemed to me decades ago when it, Arizona was considering a voucher of forty five hundred dollars and spending per student in Arizona was ten thousand. So it seemed to me if parents only got forty five percent of what was being spent, that every parent who took a voucher was like a net financial gain for the state. I don't see why that is so hard for folks to understand. I, I mean, I don't know why it's hard to understand as as well. I mean, first of all, you have to, we have to step back and say, what lens are we looking at education policy making through, right? And sure. when we're enacting these programs, are we primarily concerned about the student and the individual? Um, how do we how do we deliver education to benefit the largest number of students, or are we just interested in preserving sense systems and institutions, regardless of how well they're serving students and families? I would argue that. Uh, school choice by prioritizing the needs of individual students um, helps those students clearly and actually uh, doesn't harm and actually improves the quality of the whole system. So by putting the by putting the emphasis on the student first, we're getting a win-win situation. So, right when you look at the big picture, right. Um, private school choice programs, vouchers, tax credits, education, uh, scholarship accounts. We're talking about just over 1% of all students in K-12 education in the United States. Uh, so it's still a relatively small footprint, though it's growing and we're seeing these programs grow. Um, but the actual amount of funding 
total funding in the K-12 system that's going to school choice, choice is somewhere around a half of a percent. So a little over 1% of students, about a half percent of the funding, that means that we're spending significantly less per student on, on students who exercise school choice. And that means more money left over per student for the system as a whole. And we see that, right? In, in states where school choice has taken hold more, the spending per student still has gone up for the students who stay in the traditional system. Is that right? That's right. And then I think and we see that over the long the long term. So groups that kind of track the the spending and they adjusted for inflation, recognizing that the dollar value changes. But every state between I think like the early two early two thousands, two thousand two, and the latest national data, which is right on the eve of COVID, every state during that period increased per pupil spending. Right. Um, and that includes states like Florida. Arizona, Indiana, Wisconsin, and others that have long track records and significant number of students who are participating in these private school choice programs. So Missouri this year, the legislature is considering open enrollment, which we don't have. I mean, 40, 43 states have. Missouri has a very, very strict, if you live closer within a certain number of miles, in the very rare situation, can a student go outside their district? And apparently in the last day or so, 175 school districts have gotten together to declare that they are against open enrollment because it will hurt them. And again, doesn't this speak to protecting the system over the families? It does. It's a, I mean, to come out against um, merely giving families the option to, to choose another public school district, yeah. which could mean more students from outside of the district could come enroll in your program and bring more funding to your school. That's kind of demonstrates a level of um, insecurity and defensiveness that doesn't need to be there because um, we've seen open enrollment work in uh, other states and um, students and families tend to navigate toward districts that are, um, and they choose for a lot of reasons, but they often tend to navigate toward districts that are higher performing academically. Sure. And, you know, maybe safer environments for kids or whatever, but um, you deliver a better product as that school district and you have should have nothing, nothing to fear from uh, an open enrollment system. That's right. And maybe even if it is a zero sum game, you know, lean into it. We see this in other states where districts have developed stronger programs to attract kids. And that part, the, the message I am hearing in Missouri is that it's anti-public school system to let families choose. And um, I think that folks are forgetting that the families who really want and need to choose are the families for whom the school system isn't working. That's the unhappy families. And what they are saying is, no, unhappy families, you have to stay put. We can't let you out. And that to me is not, not the most ringing endorsement of a system. Like, you have to stay. We can't let you leave. Yes, I mean, what other what other Maybe sphere? Berlin had a wall, right? Like, what's that? Yeah, what, what other sphere or sector would we like as Americans tolerate that? Right, where you have a, right. a significant percentage of people who are dissatisfied, and they and you tell them they can't move with their feet, right, and vote with their feet and, and choose something that works better for them, just because you know um, most of the families on my block may want to order 
goods and services from Amazon. If Amazon doesn't work well for me, I can go to Walmart. And sure. how, how does that hurt other people? Right. I mean, it's even the best, highest performing school systems are not going to work well as a fit for every student. So if we, again, if we want to focus on the individual needs of students and what fits them, um, maybe a student who lives in school district A will benefit more from crossing to school district B and benefiting from a program there. Uh, but school district A may offer something to help students come from outside their borders. So why why are we not prioritizing the, the students' families as customers and and recognizing that just because you live in a certain boundary zone doesn't necessarily mean that's that's what's best for those students. Right. And as you rightly point out, kids move all the time. Kids move districts, move states, move, leave the country, leave the school, home school. I mean, kids move all the time. But when a kid is uh it when it's anticipated that a child's gonna leave for a private school choice program, an open enrollment program, then it becomes a problem. If we don't make them not move out of the district, right? Right. That that would be anathema too. <laughs> right. I mean, I just it's like kids move all the time, and districts have to adjust their budgets all the time. And you have growing districts, and you have declining districts. Missouri is a declining state, and most of the districts in the state are declining. People aren't moving around that much within the state, so it's a declining state. They have to factor that in whether we have open enrollment or not. Absolutely, and Michigan, where I live, just happens to be in a similar situation where enrollments are declining. But right, the districts budget and plan for that. So um, we don't we don't stand at the border of the district and stop families from moving to another part of the state or moving out of state because mom or dad got a job somewhere else, right? Or right. you know, at some point the students age in and age out of the system, um, and birth rates and demographics and all that play in, and, and districts can project those things. Why we treat uh, these school choice programs in particular as something. Uh, different that can't that we don't know how to calculate for is just strikes me as a, a completely unreasonable excuse. And there's there's they school districts have the experience to be able to adapt to these situations, and following the trends and how it's played out in other states, we see that it's not just a theory; it actually works mm-hmm. for both the student and for the district. You know what else I think is interesting is there's since COVID. Um, I guess before, but since COVID, for sure, there's been monthly polling of parents to see how they're doing. And there's a long list of questions and multiple groups do them. But for the most part, what these uh, polls have found, and there's new polling data out today, support for school choice programs is incredibly high among parents, like 70%, 74%, 73%, depending on whether you're talking about charter schools, ESAs, open enrollment, parents very strongly support it. So don't you think it's kind of incredible that you still hear so much bad misinformation coming out of the folks who are running the system as it currently exists when parents have clearly demonstrated a preference for wanting more choices? Yeah, I think it demonstrates, right, there's, a, there's two dynamics. One is the, the popularity, like as you said, during COVID especially, we saw the bump up <laughs> that's kind of sustained itself ever since these last few years on you know, parental support for education savings accounts or school choice in general, uh, 70, 75% consistently. Uh, the other dynamic though is they don't, parents aren't an organized concentrated interest in the way that the administrator groups and the unions and those who oppose, sure. oppose choice, right? So the key is 
key is, uh, you know, concentrating that parent interest in their voice. Um, and, and so it takes maybe a little extra for uh, lawmakers and policymakers to hear and understand that broad support for school choice and make it happen because, um, you know, generally parents as a, as a principal are going to su- they support choice because they recognize when students need those extra opportunities, whether, you know, the families can't afford uh, the option or the student has a special need or whatever it is. But that's something that lawmakers can be more more attuned to uh, for sure and recognize that parents understand choice because and especially younger parents, we see the polling, right? Sure. Younger generation of parents have grown up with the ability to choose and customize all sorts of things in areas of their lives and choice programs as they exist now is just another way to rec- you know, meet and cater that demand. Do you think that um, the folks who are continuing to try to prevent more school choice options from being passed are losing ground? I th- I think in the big picture, yes, they are. I think the trend the trend line, um, especially in many states, we're seeing the growth of choice is expanding uh, quickly, um, and you know it's really about a shift and balance of power from these concentrated interest groups uh, that make money off the system versus the interests of parents and their parent their power. So Arizona. Uh, many more families are signing up to get education savings accounts in Arizona. Um, Iowa and Utah just passed programs that will be ESAs, uh, education savings accounts that will that will be either right out the gate or soon thereafter available to all students in the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a bunch of other states are looking to do the same thing. So at least in some states, the momentum is growing and those who are um, trying to block it or on the, on the losing side of history. Yeah. I feel like in Missouri, we're going to have Iowa to the North where parents can pick any school and take their state funding. Essentially. It's going to be a universal education savings account. Essentially we're got Kansas and Oklahoma have strong open enrollment laws, Arkansas, uh, the governor, the new governor of Arkansas is um, planning on trying to do a universal ESA as well. Plus a bunch of other pretty bold education initiatives. Uh, Illinois has more choice than Missouri. Anyway, we're going to be surrounded by states where parents have more options than we have. They can move across the border to Iowa or to Arkansas and send their children to a private school uh, with their state funding. And Missouri is going to be left holding the bag of like, we can't even have open enrollment because we're afraid that's going to hurt the public school system. I just think that we are we are going to be on the wrong end of this argument really fast. I think you see it play out in right in some states where where um I mean, Florida is probably a good example of this, where they've had a long, robust history of choice programs and opportunities for families. And that actually is can be a key factor to among many things, right? But can draw families in. Growing state. To make your state attractive as a place to raise a family, right? Because you have access to customized options in a whole variety of, you know, you know, the freedom to homeschool uh, funds to, to help uh, your kid go to regular private school or a micro school or some hybrid school or, or charter schools, you know, are being in abundance or just being able to cross district lines, virtual. I mean, the more of those options you make available to families and be able to put them in the driver's seat, that's attractive uh, for them 
Um, so hopefully that'll spur a little pressure on Missouri to to keep up with their neighbors. I hope so. I mean, we have this uh, rural issue where, um, which is typical across the country, but uh, people have very strong feelings about their rural schools and, and there are very strong communities built around, around these rural schools. And yet they're afraid that if you give people the option of leaving, everyone's going to leave. So it can't be both, right? It's like, which one is it? We love our schools, or if we let people leave, it'll be like rats from a sinking ship, you know? Uh, but I think the fear that I uh, hear from folks who are defending the system as it is, is, uh, again, just tells me that they don't have the confidence in their schools that they should have. I mean, if their schools are great and everyone loves them, they'll be fine. It's, you know, it's, I guess you don't really find out until you open the doors. And I also believe that even with open enrollment, even in Arizona, where you have universal ESAs, not every parent is doing it. Most people are staying in their, in their traditional public school. Exactly. It's exactly right. Um, these kind of worst case scenario, you know, if we pass universally ESA, that means everybody's going to take them just doesn't play out. That's just not how it's played out. And the, the rural school argument is losing a lot of its steam. Um, there've been a couple of studies recently, one out of Florida, one out of Arizona talking about two of the leading choice States. And they've shown that, you know, you're seeing more families in rural areas using a variety of different choice options, but you're also not seeing it drastically reduce the number of people who remain enrolled or invested in in their rural schools. And I think Michigan too, right? Michigan, there's just a lot of rural uptake on the open enrollment program. Exactly. I mean, there's another piece that that maybe states want to look at from a policy perspective that would help as well. And that's you know, ensuring that like homeschool or private school students can access, you know, individual courses in the public school on a part-time basis, like a part-time enrollment plan or a hybrid arrangement with their schools where the schools can at least be partially funded. I mean, if creative districts will realize they not only want to play in the open enrollment game to attract families from outside their district, but if they can get partial funding for a student who's otherwise homeschooling or attending yeah. private school, that's something you want to get in on as well, because you can help meet more students' needs and and benefit the district as well. Yeah, we've certainly tried the protect the districts at all costs thing, and it has not worked well in Missouri. And and even now, districts for their foundation funding um, from the state can pick the highest enrollment out of the last four years. I mean, we have this incredible hold harmless where, where you can still be using almost your pre-COVID enrollment uh, in Missouri just to protect districts from losing funding. And so essentially, even if we had open enrollment, kids could move around for three or four years before districts would feel any impact. And yet they're signing these letters that they're against it. And it just, uh, you know, I keep talking about this all the time. Like this is happening everywhere. These old myths are very old and they have been debunked over and over and over and over. And why do we have to keep talking about it? But I guess we have to keep talking about it. Yeah, I guess... I guess we do. I mean, um, those who have a vested interest in keeping the system the way it is may not be moved by the arguments. Right. Um, but it's it's a matter of once, you know, we get a foothold in, I know, you know, Missouri has some experience with charter schools and you have, of course, this new uh, tax credit funded ESA program, it's still small, but, <clears throat> you know, if you look at it in the long term and these families are able to tell their stories and show how the programs work for them. 
and our people are sharing these stories with the people making decisions at the state level. And like you, we mentioned earlier, the experience of all the states around you, yeah, it's going to, it's going to create a groundswell that, you know, if you can capitalize on that, it can just open up the doors where the voices of the families and the students who need these opportunities are the ones winning the day. Yeah. And we have, uh, like so many places, incredible learning loss and just incredible. Our NAEP scores tanked. Um, even our non-NAEP uh, state testing, uh, we have a, a, a significant, a, a troubling percentage of our eighth graders uh, scoring below basic in math and reading. And, you know, we have this big problem in what we're trying. It seems to me that we're arguing about protecting the status quo instead of like getting after this problem of getting kids back. You know, they may never catch up this generation and, and we're defending a system that was put in place 100 years ago. Yeah, and I giving giving families this kind of opportunity, right, is not the um, yeah, it's not the magic silver bullet to solve all these problems for learning loss. But we the research is pretty strong in showing that uh, you know the high quality research shows most uh, in almost all cases these programs are actually improving outcomes for the public schools through competitive facts, right? And actually, there's a brand new study out of the Journal of School Choice. I don't know if I've even seen this, where they associate the uh, amount of education freedom. They measure that across, you know, homeschool, private school, charter school, open enrollment, and all these things. And there's a strong association between states that have these policies and their NAEP scores really at the eighth grade level. So Makes you know, sense. it doesn't, doesn't prove causation like one causes the other necessarily, but it's just another piece of evidence to say, you know, trusting families to make these decisions, whatever they might be, you know, they're going to make at least as good decisions in the aggregate as the, the central planners are at the state level, right? And that by letting the individual parents make the decisions in the whole, we're, we're getting some better outcomes. So do you see any changes on the horizon that you think are going to stick when it comes to how schools are financed? I mean, given that in many states now, parents are being given access to their state funding. Do you think that this is going to maybe break up the power structure by changing, you know, Howard Fuller always said money is power. Everyone always says money is power. I don't know why I picked Howard Fuller, but money is power. So um, you see changes coming in how schools are funded? Um, I mean, yes, we're seeing you know, in some ways, it's almost uh, a harder political lift to change the school funding system than it is to pass a big school choice program. Uh, and it's not not one I'm as focused on in my expertise, but I know Tennessee just last year did some yeah. work in this area, right? And I think, you know, um, we think a lot at ExcelNet about how choice programs and school funding systems interact and making sure that, um, you know, the revenue sources are designed to follow the student um, as much as possible within the state and based on their characteristics that, you know, we're, you know, letting families with kids with special needs or disadvantaged families get maybe a little bigger share of that funds because there's a, there's a recognized need there. I think the, 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 the general pressure of expanding school choice is going to have some effects in states to help them improve their school funding systems. But it's going to take time and um, support on the ground to make it happen. So, well, since I've already asked you to prognosticate once, what about school accountability? 
um, I feel like that's gotten watered down. Now, Missouri, like we're in a crisis level and we're on the verge of rolling out a new system that's more watered down than the last system. We've never had letter grades or even accreditation for schools. Uh, we're very, very averse to calling a school a bad school. Do you think that, you know, like post No Child Left Behind, are we moving away from from real accountability? I think accountability definitely looks different now than it than it did, uh, and the, right after No Child Left Behind, I think the kind of the appetite for some of this politically is is different. Um, but we still, <clears throat> excuse me, like to um, you know recognize that there's multiple levels of accountability. Uh, so choice, of course, brings accountability directly to the parent, which is an important piece. We also we also like to see in in our choice programs that we support. Um, flexible kind of accountability. So giving families access to more options in the private space recognizes that the scope of curriculum and the program, you know, is going to be a little different. We can use different kinds of testing instruments, nationally known reference tests. Um, and even in some cases, uh, having uh, certified teachers like judge a portfolio of a student performance. But I know you're also talking about like at the larger level of school accountability. And I I think that the biggest thing we need to maintain in these these programs um, and that choice programs are going to help pressure and incentivize this to, to happen as well is to is to promote that kind of transparency. Just you know whether or not the accountability includes automatic infractions or consequences from the state that may not be the best policy but keeping the transparency there so parents can judge like so we know how well schools are doing how much value they're adding to students education so it gives them the ability to make informed decisions i think policymakers need to aim toward that kind of balance yeah i know excel and ed's done a lot of work around good school report cards and um Missouri could use some of those. Um, so just generally then, are you, just wrap up, are you optimistic about where education in the United States is headed or pessimistic? Um, I think in the long term, I'm optimistic, right? We've just gone through a rough, rough patch and the effects of the learning loss um, are, have been, have been difficult um on many families especially those who are already in more disadvantaged communities and disadvantaged places but i i think if we can demonstrate in a number of states that by shifting the balance of power from uh bureaucrats uh to parents and parents can show we can let a thousand flowers bloom families can choose a variety of education options um i think it's gonna it's gonna have greater benefits in the long term. And I, I like to think that the competitive pressure, as we were discussing, is not just within a state, but can uh, eventually encourage other states to want to catch up and give parents that same kind of power as well. So they're not left behind. I think I'm hopeful. Um, we've been through a rough patch, but I'm I'm hopeful that expanding education freedom is going to uh, do a great deal to uh, expand the outlook for families and students. That's great. I'm hopeful that we don't have to keep talking about these myths for another decade. Certainly. Charter, charter yes, schools certainly. are public schools. School choice doesn't drain money out of the system. It's like, 
Oh, well, but I guess we will if we have to. Well, we'll, we'll we're, yeah, we're here. Uh, and then I tell them <laughs> that I know some of our other friends as well. We'll keep, we'll keep doing what we can to dispel the myths and share the information to help families uh, be able to make informed options and access the kind of things they need for their students to succeed. That's great. Thank you so much for joining us to explain this to our listeners this morning, Ben. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Susan. Good to be with you.